Balkans. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life life life-saving. Well, today I'm psyched. Um, we get to do a, a, a really cool conversation uh, with my colleague here, Ryan Myers. Um, you're going to hear a lot about him today. We get to bump each, into each other in the hallways here at Portal Innovations. I'm really lucky to interact uh, with Ryan on a regular basis, but really excited to get his story out there to learn a little bit more about his journey. Um, he's a, really a skilled biotech executive, got significant experience in uh, both management consulting and venture capital and operations company creation, starting things from scratch. Um, in his early career, he worked at places like Gibson Consulting, uh, Arate Consulting, um, and then, you know, really more recently, got deeply engaged in uh, startups, uh, launched a company out of UChicago called AdGraft, uh, which is focused on a novel skin-based cell therapy platform, where he's the CEO and part of the founding team. And then company number two, Elnera El Therapeutics, a more recent startup where he's the chief business officer, part of the founding team there, along with Anwen, Wen, um, focused on oncology and delivering drugs you know, to the site of action, um, which is particularly a challenging terrain and frontier that Elnair is conquering. So really excited to get a chance to learn a little bit more about his background. And in particular, as you'll hear, he's uh, coming at it from a business perspective. Uh, like me, Ryan has an MBA. And in his case, you know, he got his MBA from Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago and then did his undergrad at Indiana University at the Kelly School. So welcome to the show. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure to be here. I get to walk by the podcast studios and see all the amazing guests that you've managed to bring in from your network around the country. And it's really an honor to be sitting in the seat today and telling the story of AdGraft, Alnair, my story, and why MBA should be excited about life sciences and all the opportunities that we have in this world. Yeah, fantastic. Well, why don't we jump right in maybe to level set for the audience? It would be great to get there, to, to set the stage a little bit with a description of what you're doing at both companies. Maybe start with AdGraft and then transition into Alnair, and then we can kind of go from there. Absolutely. And and all of this comes in the context of a similar founder. So Dr. Xiaoyang Wu um, is a founder of both technologies that we're going to talk about today. He is a tenured professor at the university and really, you know, a brilliant partner, friend who I've had the pleasure of working with. And the first company that we're going to, you know, introduce here is AdGraph Therapeutics. It is a really novel platform for cell therapy. So essentially what we can do at AdGraft is we can genetically modify skin and turn it into a bioengine. So skin grafts that are modified in order to be protein factories. So similar to how all these different companies are chasing different cell types as protein factories for long-term stable delivery of different proteins, peptides, whatever it may be. AdGraft is doing that only through a really safe and easy to control platform using the skin that has the potential to do long-term delivery and behave a lot like how we do wound healing now with how the skin actually behaves. So that's company one, um, really interesting technology there, excited to dive more in. And then company two, Elnair Therapeutics, actually a portfolio company here at Portal, uh, really thrilled about that. And essentially what we're doing is we are unlocking new druggable targets in terms of delivery to tumors. So we've created novel delivery systems for packing existing drugs 
into the body or into mesopore silica nanoparticles, which can be delivered to the body and essentially protect those drugs from exposure to your healthy tissues, which is why patients get so sick during chemotherapy, and really eradicate tumors, um, at least preclinically. We've seen great evidence and we're excited to take the important steps we need to to translate this to the clinic and the people in need. Well, you know, um, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk and, you know, the eloquence that you have about you and your narration and your storytelling. I'm wondering if you can kind of walk through the process with um, Alnair and some of the things that um, you were able to experience within your training, academic training at Booth. I know that um, you guys were very prolific. I mean, you went through many different programs there, um, ultimately, you know, winning New Venture Challenge um, and beneficiary of the um, George Schultz Innovation Fund investments. Um, just talk a little bit about how that was helpful to you to kind of set the stage for where you are right now. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'll, I'll probably shout out University of Chicago here uh, 20 times between now and then. We can edit it out in post-production. But, um, you know, we really, Al Nair and AdGraft and myself owe everything to the university. We started off at Al Nair and the typical, you know, programming, which is iCorps. So when an inventor at the university comes up with a technology, they take it to iCorps and they help figure out, is this technology just something cool that you can publish on or is it something with a market? And went through the iCorp program, saw that there was potential for commercialization, went and, to- And that's funded through the National Science Foundation, correct? Yes, and yes. the whole goal there is to try to expose uh, scientists who have come up with an invention, a novel idea- but maybe understand better what problem are they solving? And, you know, in solving that problem, you know, can they be paid for that? You know, is there a mm -hmm. market for their technology? And it's it's really kind of hard to overstate how much of a potential disconnect there can be from an invention to a true commercializable innovation. Right. And NSFI core um, is really, you know, a great opportunity early on to figure out. And even I would imagine you probably had the chance there where as you're going out and talking to various stakeholders, whether it's a customer or an expert or an investor, you probably tweaked the idea along the way. And I think that's what that i program is really um, impactful around. But just the whole basis here is that you've got the National Science Foundation, the U.S. government, that's doing everything it can to try to translate good ideas coming out of the university. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for diving more into that because I probably didn't give the program enough justice in my initial explanation. You know, an a million dollar mousetrap that can kill a mouse 100% of the time is a great invention, but it's probably never going to be worth anything commercially. And, and I think scientists go through that process of trying to figure that out. And like you mentioned, it's a really important step for them to look at the data and to talk to customers and figure out how your product really is going to translate. And for Elnair, the story is a little simpler just because it's a cancer technology. Um, unfortunately, we're all very aware of how bad the world needs new breakthroughs in cancer and how commercially viable that can be. But for other technologies, it's an amazing program. Um, and it was for Elnair as well. And you know, from there, what, what the university does a great job of is setting up that pathway. So you start in iCorps and you validate whether or not it's a commercially feasible idea. You take it from iCorps and you go to Compass, um, which is a program that essentially is like startup boot camp for deep tech science at the university. So taking this idea that we know is commercially viable and saying, okay, now what are we going to do with it? And going through the process of meeting mentors and funding people who are, you know, funding people, what a great word, but uh, venture capitalists <laughs> and, and angels and everyone who is going to help make the journey possible. 
Um, and then really preparing the company for that next step, which is early fundraising to get towards whatever milestones they need to, to get to a seed round, to get to a series A. And so Alnair went through that Compass program and transitioned from that into the George Schultz Innovation Fund. And the George Schultz, oh, sorry. And were there, were there classes involved in that too? When you talk about some of these programs, maybe you could differentiate between some being more like programmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, like the NSFI core program is not mm-hmm. a class per se. It's you're participating. It's kind of an extracurricular type of activity. Right. When you uh, describe like Compass, are you interacting with uh, various faculty or professors? Or maybe just talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the university does a great job of bringing together professors that are at the university with unique sets of skills to help you think about how to set up a cap table or a term sheet when you get to that point. Also, strategy professors who can help you to understand what you actually need to accomplish and why. And then they bring in great people from the community who can really tell you firsthand that they've developed drugs or they've developed these novel technologies and give you that roadmap. And those sessions happen in the form of classroom learning kind of environments, but also in kind of free form, set up your own sessions with these people. Mm-hmm. And really it's what you make of it. So I think that, you know, what I can say about the Adgraft and their team who both went through these processes um, and both are way better for it. We were lucky to have really great scientific founders who were really open to the coaching. And also we were exposed to great mentors who were willing to help us. And we still talk to a lot of those mentors today through those programs. And quite frankly, it's what set the roadmap for us to be where we are now. And then from there, you uh, were continuing, you know, that journey. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about your next steps. And then from uh, moving on to the next phase with George Schultz Innovation Fund, maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of that process involved and maybe a little bit about the challenges that you faced, you know, in kind of getting out there and exposing the technologies to this, you know, a growing audience of of people that ultimately, you know, could could either give you guidance or or give pushback as well. Right. Right. And so, yeah, so the George Schultz Innovation Fund is an amazing program set up by the university to help give kind of that first push outside of uh, of the crib, so to speak, right? Your first steps as a company of funds, which is what any company really needs. And essentially, when we went through George Schultz, it's an iterative process. It's not a one-day pitch competition where on the other side you get money. And during that process, you go through a, a really iterative diligence with a really wide array of students from within the university. So PhDs, law students, um, everything in between business students Mm -hmm. who are pointing out some of the things you need to think about for the company in order to tell the story better and to be a commercially viable, fundraisable company. And in that process, you really learn a lot about, first off, an early taste of what it's like to pitch and get a little bit of rejection, get a little bit of success. Um, All of that is extremely important in kind of forming your, your entrepreneurial story as a company. And in George Schultz, we really are challenged to build that first deck. So, you know, uh, Dr. Wynn, my partner, Aang, who you mentioned earlier, uh, really spearheaded that process with the team through George Schultz and helped to build kind of that first iteration of the pitch deck. I was more helping from afar at that point. Um, so I wasn't as intimately involved with the team in George Schultz as I was during the next chapter, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, essentially what they did is they did a great job of taking all that input and really coming to a point where they said, okay, here's the commercially digestible version of this technology. Here's what the opportunity is. Here's what we need to do next in order to make it happen. And coming up with that plan sounds simple, but as you know, and as I'm sure the listeners know, when you're talking about a life science company, 
there's a hundred different avenues you could go down and there's a hundred different decisions to make from regulatory to study design to market, you know, market uh, optimization. And, and what it creates is, is a set of uh, choices that makes it really difficult to tell that story succinctly in 10 minutes and your rationale for it to a group of people who know what they're doing. And, and George Schultz not only was a great opportunity because luckily Alnair went on to win that and, and receive some funding, but it was a great opportunity to put us through the ringer to get mm-hmm. to that story and to figure out who we were. Yeah, it, you're facing an audience of, um, you know, maybe critics is, sounds like a harsh word, but mm-hmm. I mean that in the most positive sense. I mean, you're you're meeting the market. I mean, there's nothing more um, honest and brutal than the market right. because the market, you know, doesn't, doesn't lie. It always tells the truth. Absolutely. And what is the market? The market is a collection of voices, whether it's a set of customers uh, at some point in the future. And in the case of a biotech company, that's going to be patients or doctors or prescribers that are going to be, you know, advocating for, you know, the use of the drug in the case of Elner. El- El- mm-hmm. um, and, and, but the market is, is also, um, you know, a, a place that loves simplicity, you know, mm-hmm. and and biotech and a story around building a biotech company um, is is a more complex story to tell. Mm-hmm. However, it can be honed, it can be developed. Man, going back to your my earlier points around your eloquence, you've, you're mm-hmm. good at you know breaking down the concepts uh, around these companies in a way that you know an outside audience could understand. And I think. Did you find it interesting when you're going through that process, whether it be, you know, through George Soltz or NSF i and then eventually the uh, NVC program, did you find um, the challenge around different audiences know different levels of, of detail around mm-hmm. a given area? Some might have you know, really deep questions around the science because they follow it really well. But then there's maybe a set in that same audience that doesn't understand the science as much as they understand the market challenges. And and there's a lot of skepticism across the room that you kind of need to be able to overcome. Did you find that? And if so, any tricks to the trade to overcome? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we can, that that became even more relevant in New Venture Challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in George Schultz, you know, and thank you for talking about the storytelling because that's something that we work really hard on. Because at the end of the day, you can go out and get feedback from mentors or you know really great people from the industry that that can give you good insight. But until someone's talking about writing a check or not, the feedback is all with a grain of salt, right? So you really learn through the process. And, and George Schultz is a great microcosm of that that gives us that exposure where you learn what people really think when it's time to to buck up with the check and. And when we talk to these different audiences, you have to look into their background and say, this individual is a business person who's commercialized drugs, but done it on a private equity scale. So they probably don't care about some of the specific study details of how we maintain some of these rodent models, right? This is not going to be make or break information for them. They want to know if this works, what's it look like, right? So you you tell that story. But on the other hand, you could be talking to someone who is a formulation scientist by training and, and came up through years of industry pharma. And if you don't know your details on on what the study design was that is generating the data you're presenting to them and why it's relevant, then that's where the conversation ends after yeah, five minutes. So out. it's really just about making sure that you're aware of who you're talking to, but also that you know what's important about your technology and that you know how to defer when you need to. Um, you know, we haven't talked about it, but I'm not a scientist by training. Uh, and my partners are extremely supportive, but 
to a degree, you have to give confidence to whoever you're talking to. And, and through George Schultz, we really learned what that process looked like firsthand when you're asking for money. And that's where the skin in the game, you know, the, where mm-hmm. the rubber meets the road, where the, the risk is really being taken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how did that feel um, when, you know, the award was won and, you know, you, you and even just broadly, you know, in, in fundraising where you get the commitment, how did that feel in maybe just not to put words in your mouth, but it's, it's not only about the joy and excitement that goes with that, but um, the responsibility that comes with that. Yes. Can mm-hmm. you, did you, do you agree, you know, with that dichotomy? Absolutely. I mean, fundraising is the ultimate roller coaster. Uh, as anyone will tell you, you'll, you'll have a hundred meetings and one might say yes. And that's a good hit, right? And the, the downs don't feel as down when you feel confident about what you're doing in your story know that what you're delivering is good, but the ups are, are really a, a big win. And I think that something that I struggle with and our team talks about a lot is you have to enjoy when those good things happen because sometimes they're, it's water in the desert, right? It's few and far between. But at the end of the day, it's like you describe, once you get that check, you have to be kind of a psycho to a degree to fundraise. And you convince yourself it's going to happen so that when it does happen, you might not feel that elation that others might think you feel when they read the news headline and see that you've secured a million dollar round. You think that that is something that just happens. You get one phone call and you're excited. But in reality, that's the result of months and months and months of cultivating relationships and working through details and no's and small yeses. And then eventually it happens. And by then, you've put so much work into making it happen that you were convinced it was going to happen all along. Mm-hmm. And now it's on to what's next. So, yeah. you know, you need that attitude a little as an entrepreneur in order yeah. to really understand because once you see that bank account start to get those wires, mm-hmm. now it's time to work. I mean, you've you've got the funds, which feels like a win, but yeah. people are expecting things to happen with that exactly. money yeah. in order to make them not look dumb for giving you it. You right. Know? It's you, you wake up the next day and it's kind of like Groundhog Day. It's a new yeah. set of pressures. You now have money, but then you've got to put that money to work to create value for those those shareholders that have now come in and they're betting on you. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and you've convinced yourself it's going to happen anyway. So when it does happen, it's yeah. just another box to check, which is sad, but you also, I think it's good because that's what encourages progress is keeps you moving towards your next goal. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, continue on uh, as you describe that next step in your journey with the booth program and kind of the penultimate step uh, that led into the pre-seed round with the NBC. Talk about that experience and what some of the um, what some of the joys and some of the challenges were. Yeah. So we win George Schultz, highly technical kind of competition. You know, we're really talking about the science. And one of the leaders there at the University of Chicago is Steve Gould, who um, great mentor and leader in the life sciences world. And we transitioned into New Venture Challenge, which is much more of a commercial competition at the university. In fact, it's one of the top venture challenges on, on par with um, TechCrunch and uh, Y Combinator and all those. And it's actually just a University of Chicago startup challenge, which, you know, credit to Kaplan and Tebby over at the university for creating this unbelievable program. But you're not pitching to life science investors anymore. You're pitching to very generalist investors, some in quantum, some in fashion. And and what you're trying to tell them is why your cancer drug is going to be a great business. And you talked about it earlier of really having to change your pitch. But the beauty of New Venture Challenge is it is a class. It's a three-month class at the University of Chicago for graduate students. And you have three different presentations to get to the finals. And companies get thinned down during and once we were selected as one of the companies that get to you know, be in this process, 
we went into our first presentation and presented to a group full of unbelievable life science, healthcare, but also generalist investors and came in and tried to, you know, for lack of a better term, dumb it down a little to make it more, you know, about the business than the science. Mm -hmm. And we walked out of that first pitch and Steve Gould came up to me and said, I hated it. Um, you know, he kind of laughed and said, you know, you had such a great presentation in George Schultz and, you know, where was the science? Where was the oomph? And, you know, luckily the point of these presentations is for us to grow and to build that story. Um, so we really took that to heart and worked hard to, for the next presentation, do even better. But the thing that was really confusing is some people came up to us and said, I didn't really know what you were talking about, about some of these things. (laughs) And so we had to find that balance of, can we make Steve happy? And can yeah. we also make, you know, fashion investor X happy? Yeah. And, um, you know, the next few months we went through that process of finding that balance until, you know, you get to be one of those final 10 teams out of, you know, however many start at the start of the funnel to get to the finalists and get to present in front of a room full of some of the best investors in the world. Um, multiple Midas top 100 investors in that room, but the industry is very spread out. So, mm-hmm. you know, we get in there and we're, we tell our story and we tell the story that is the culmination of the Steve feedback, but also, you know, all of the generalist feedback. And luckily it was uh, convincing enough for us to walk away with the first place prize. And we were really thrilled about that. But I think even we will tell you, we could have done better. You know, we look back at that opportunity and say, we could have done Q&A better. We could have done this better. We could have done this better. And that's just entrepreneurship. You know, we turn that into future lessons of being able to present better in the future. And we had a great team and that was a fun win because because that felt bigger than just ourselves. It felt like we were doing right by the university too. And to your earlier point, you're always trying to move forward. So, mm-hmm. you know, perfect is the enemy of the good. It's, mm-hmm. you know, be good and keep moving, you know, and get to perfection, you know, someday in the future. Um, okay, so then you win that. What happens next? And talk about the sequence that follows the the win, which is which is huge. I mean, it's so hard to win the NVC, knowing mm-hmm. firsthand, you know, all the great companies that have gone through that and some of the legendary stories of the companies that, you know, are now national brands today. Um, what happens following that? You know, there's a brief, I'm sure, excitement and celebration to your point. And then what? Yeah. And it's a great point. I mean, there's almost a pressure to winning because Grubhub and you know, all of Foxtrot have been these companies that have come out of NVC, and you really want to be one that people talk about like that one day. And we're still working on that. But, you know, luckily, our team did a good job of enjoying that win. And we went out that night and had dinner as a full team and, and really got to absorb that we accomplished what we set out to. And, and I'd say, honestly, that is a great lesson for any entrepreneur that I hadn't previously done in earlier wins of you need to take that like one night at mm-hmm, least and, mm-hmm. and really unwind and, and be reflective. Because I'll remember that night forever. is just yes. a really fun moment to be with the people who made it happen with you. But then it's time to fundraise, right? So we won $600,000 from the University of Chicago in the NVC. But that is a culmination of individual investors from that room. And essentially, we knew we needed to raise about a million um, in order to get to our next step. And luckily, the University of Chicago and the NVC comes with a certain amount of cachet that we were able to leverage into a pretty quick round. So in the next three weeks, we went out and we were able to fundraise to get to an oversubscribed uh, $1.1 million round for Alnair. And that was a lot of fun because it felt like the culmination of months of work where we had really nurtured these relationships with the VCs that ended up coming in, um, you know, including Portal. And it was thrilling to get Portal to be a part of that because we've grown up here. Uh, you know, we worked here long before we were a portfolio company. And getting to be in the ecosystem, it's it's good to be inside the fences, as we say. So um, 
building that round though is is a really great lesson in how fundraising can work. And it's if you have that anchor, which was a new venture challenge for us, and if you have momentum, it's easy to it's not easy, but it's it's much more straightforward to build that coalition. And, and that's really what you need to fundraise is a coalition mm-hmm. and that comfort for the investors that they're not making decisions alone. Um, because that's a rare kind of investor to be willing to do that. So uh, it worked out really well and it was a really cool experience to get to close that. So let's dial it back and, you know, get, you know, a little bit earlier in your career. What brought you into the biotech space to begin with? Maybe you could talk about your experience, maybe in, even in high school. Where, what did you aspire, aspire to become and what put you on the track to ultimately get to be where you are today? Yeah, uh, going back I, in high school, I think is a good place to start because I remember I was in advanced chemistry um, and I always liked science and loved like the idea of trying to understand how the world works. But at one point, my advanced chemistry teacher, I think it was AP Chem in like junior year of high school, called me up to the front and was like, hey, Ryan, like everyone in here wants to be a doctor, but I know you want to go to business school. Like, what are you doing in here? Is this really the best use of your time? And I told her, I said, you know, you're probably right, but this is really interesting. And and I think that understanding how the mechanisms of the world work is almost like a passion, but not necessarily something that I ever saw myself doing firsthand because I almost fainted in eighth grade during the frog dissection. So I knew that I probably wasn't a doctor, but I at that time I had no idea that this kind of career existed. Mm-hmm. So I went on to business school um, and during business school, I kind of developed an affinity for consulting, but specifically I thought healthcare was really interesting. And when I got into my career in management consulting, um, started off in more of like a manufacturing global footprint kind of consulting and didn't really feel passion or love for that. And then found my way to my second firm where I started working more in healthcare. And in that journey, I, I saw the impact and I saw how interesting healthcare was and how many problems there are to solve in healthcare. Now, that being said, that was more on the insurer side, setting up, you know, ambulatory surgery centers, private equity. And in that process, I was kind of taken aback by the innovation that went into the businesses that are created around it. And I had always been of the opinion that the world is going to move from a few industries and healthcare was one of them. And I wanted to be on something that actually moved the world. And when I had the opportunity to go to University of Chicago for my MBA, um, I did that because I knew that what I was in was not the kind of impact I eventually wanted to make um, or the kind of experiences that I thought were going to lead me to where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was at the University of Chicago, this small thing called COVID happened and we started to look at the world in a different way. And the scientific community came together and and built these things. But that was kind of at the beginning of my introduction to life sciences. And I had the opportunity to, luckily I, I had developed enough savings during my time in consulting and was able to actually take a risk and do a kind of dual internship thing where I did an internship with a venture capital company down in Texas. And simultaneously, I went to the Polsky Center and did this program that I described as Compass. And Compass matched me as an MBA with my partners, Dr. Wu and Dr. Shu, who had created this unbelievable technology where you could genetically modify skin grafts and then reimplant them and program them to produce anything you want. And interestingly enough, it had started an addiction. Um, Dr. Wu and Dr. Shu had developed, you know, a platform for cocaine and it was essentially to help patients who were struggling with cocaine addiction, a potential first treatment for cocaine use. And I was so intrigued by the platform itself that I was 
just instantly enthralled with the idea of meeting them and, and maybe helping with the team. And joining that team and going through the crash course for, of my mini PhD, we joke with Ming and Zhao Yang, of learning about how the technology works, of learning about how you know this broader world of life sciences that I really had only dipped my toe into in consulting really operated was one of the more rewarding experiences of my career to date. And from them, I knew, you know, whether I was going to found a company here or whether I was going to go into venture in this stage or in this field, I knew that I wanted to be close to the front lines of developing the next generation of technology for what I thought, what I still believe is going to change the world, which is this, you know, explosion of gene and cell therapies and new enabling technologies that's going to really fundamentally change the way we treat everything. But, um, you know, we're, we're on the front edge of it. So uh, I w- I've just been passionate and enthralled in it ever since I got that exposure. Yeah, no, I mean, you strike me as a, a driven person. So you're set your mind on this field and you're, you're going, you're, you're all in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're, w- when you describe the platform, mm-hmm. dive in a little bit deeper around what you mean by platform. And I mean this, you know, for our audience, you know, yeah. because we tend to, use words that you and I both understand, even though we're not scientists, right. but we pretend to be scientists. Right. But the word platform, like, let's break that down a little bit. What does platform mean? Why is it important to a biotech company? How does how does that help you from a personal perspective tell the story around what the opportunity is for either, you know, Alnair, AdGraft, or any company that you'd be focused on? Right. Um so platform at its core is the idea of an innovation that allows for a ton of maybe smaller innovations that build on the first. So if we think about it in non-science terms, you know, we think of the steam engine invention, right? And if we look at like the, the hockey stick of human history of growth, we see that human uh, progress was pretty stable until the invention of the steam engine and then an explosion over the last, you know, 100 years that, that's unprecedented historically. And that's because the steam engine unlocks so many other technologies just because people could travel and share ideas differently. It's this idea that once this is created, we can build little branches off this tree that are going to be huge businesses in themselves. So essentially what we've built at AdGraft and Alnair is that base, right? It's, It's that foundation of a new idea that you can build upon and that technology unlocks new ideas. And so when you talk about platforms, you know, Five, six years ago, it was all the rage in biotech. Uh, if someone had a platform technology, they'd go to the market and they'd get a $20 million check pretty quickly. I think you know the market's caught up a little bit to that. And now it's more about, great if you have a platform, but let's see how you can point it. But um, it's, it's a really important foundation you know, in, in the world of life sciences. And we think of like the invention of CRISPR probably was the spark that started the platform, right? When they pitched CRISPR, they were probably like, this is a platform for a million different ideas. And, yeah. and that's proven to be right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that, that, that's fair. And I mean, the, one of the things that, you know, I've really enjoyed, you know, in my journey in biotech and I'm wondering, you know, just whether you're experiencing the same thing, especially as you get into operations, which I want to kind of get into in just a mm-hmm. minute. So, you know, now you've got the companies, you're moving things forward, now it's about execution, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, and how that shifts from fundraising to execution. But one of the things I've really enjoyed um, and have, I think, benefited from is just really enjoying the people, mm-hmm. you know, the people in the process. You mentioned Steve Gould and, and, 
and uh, Professor Kaplan and uh, Ellen Rudnick and others mm-hmm. that, you know, are influential people that have all kind of touched and shaped, you know, in one form, you know, your companies have, as you move them forward. Um, but their personalities, their character, um, you're, you're picking up things. Then And then, you know, your, your, your scientific co-founders, um, there's a lot of interesting people in the mm-hmm. process. At the end awaits a patient, you know, with hopefully, you know, we have a solution for that patient in whatever disease area that mm-hmm. our platform is pointing to, like you said, to use your words. Um, but I wonder if you found this the same, just the interactions with people and your ability to kind of unlock the story from that technical person to convey it to a broader audience, because that's a very valuable skill set in going. Um, it's almost like the NSF ICOR program mm-hmm. in translating that good scientific idea into something that will solve a problem, communicating the story to the outside world in ways that a broader audience would understand. Again, you mentioned someone from fashion to someone that deeply understands, right. you know, CRISPR or whatever the the technology is. How have how has your experience been in interacting with the people and the characters and any stories there to share with the audience? Yeah. And and before I get into my stories, I have to say that your team here has been a really cool microcosm of this to watch. Because when I started in this world about two and a half years ago, I remember the first time I toured Portal and to see how it grew from 1375 to 400 and to, you know, new hires between Mike and Genia and other Mike and, you know, everyone in between. EJ is, is unbelievable. You've done an unbelievable job at this organization of building a coalition of different personality types and people with different experiences that give us confidence on the front lines as founders to go forward because we have the support system. So. Thank you for that. Um, it's really unbelievable to watch. It's, it's a it's an amazing team. Yeah, we, I'm really lucky to have you know so many great people that, including you know our portfolio company, companies and our, our members, and we really tried to stand for the the you know the the team and mm-hmm. the technology. We believe that if we're really supporting our founders, um, our entrepreneurs, our companies, that you know at the end of the day will impact, you know, the outside world as it relates to these intractable diseases. So um, I appreciate that. But, you know, it's a work in process. We're constantly continuing to try to make sure that we're adding value, you know, to to your companies as we help support you and move forward. Definitely. And then you do. And I just want to say any other of the portal team that I didn't manage to shout out, I apologize, you know, love you all. But, um, but you did get Mike and other Mike. And so, yeah, yes, so they're easy. You know, one name gets two of them. Uh, you know, Steve Lehman was the first person to ever bring us into portal and yeah. has been a mentor to us. So just a bunch of great people. But to your point, I was in private equity and management consulting and those people and scientists are very different ends of uh, spectrum. And so when you first get exposed to this world, and, you know, we were joking before we started recording about all of the initials that come after some people's names and their email signatures. You really meet people that are just from completely different walks of life. So both my partners, um, you know, weren't born in the U.S., but have come here and developed unbelievable careers and are scientists by training. And I remember when we first started working together, there was a mutual coaching going on. And, and that was a process I had never really experienced because when you go to business school and go into management consulting, your boss is probably a guy who went to business school and went into management consulting. And, you know, you guys talk about sports and all these different things that are not necessarily the same things that you talk about with your team when you're in science. And not saying that people in science don't necessarily gravitate towards the same things, but I learned so much from interacting with my partners in those early days, but not from our conference calls where we were diving into the technology. We learned from when we'd go out to dinner together and get a 
glass of wine or two in us and start talking about all of the different things about the world that my partners found interesting. And I had front row seats to their opinions about the development of the vaccine during COVID Mm -hmm. and to the response by the CDC and, and to see how these technologies that are being funded and enabled in order to address this global pandemic are really things that are, you know, just kind of on their radar anyway, because this is the world they live in. Mm-hmm. And, and it really makes these global problems feel smaller and makes us as people feel a little bit more understandable and accessible. And and I think that going through that process with these different people has been so critical for our company's success because we think about things in different ways and that's what makes a great strategy and a great company. But most importantly, you know, we we get to laugh at the same things and we get to share the hurt the same way. And, and we get to coach each other through, Hey, on this call, I think you need to do this differently or, Hey, you need to understand a little bit more about this piece of the science. And, and that's how we grow as individuals. And if you're not willing to do that, then, then life science is a tough industry to be in because, you know, my partners talk to our scientific advisory board and our experts and get pushback on their field of expertise. And a bad scientific founder will say, yeah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but a good one takes that and really adapts it. And, and I, I don't know if I'd spent my whole life studying somatic cancer cell signaling, if I'd be able to listen to someone that went to a different university or, you know, had a shorter career or something, their feedback on my platform and, and just adapt to it and, yeah. and pivot. And I think that that's what's really impressive about scientists there. Their egos yeah. when it comes to the science and the facts can be so dramatically humbling mm-hmm. that it really gives you good perspective as a business person about how you can operate and think differently. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, can you maybe walk us through now what it's like in the day-to-day operations? You know, you've you've come back from the market, mm-hmm. you've raised your round. Um, there's a constant element I know around you know the future and fundraising and all those kinds of things. But maybe just transitioning a little bit toward you know with the money in hand, what is execution like, and what are some of the challenges that go with the day-to-day? of actually making it real. So going from your vision and the story and the, you know, the convincing proposition that you had to those investors and then the responsibility now of going in and kind of making it real. Talk about that if you can, uh, some of the activities that you're involved in on a day-to-day basis, Mm -hmm. you know, the the good parts and the challenging parts. Yeah. And I think it's a great point because so often we read the headline of a run, a fund, uh, a fund being raised and then we just kind of forget about the company until the next one gets raised and we think about it. But in between, a lot of work goes into it. And I think the biggest challenge is patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as an operator and, you know, someone more business inclined, you, you understand that we want to push things fast mm-hmm. and we want to make things happen fast. But at the end of the day, if you make fast decisions on the other side of execution about things that really need thoughtful processes or science that takes time, mm-hmm. you could push yourself towards you know, having to beg your fundraisers for more money. So you have to be really, really careful. Um, and I think fundraising puts you in that fast mentality and you have to change your mindset really quick when it comes to operating. Um, not saying you're not trying to operate and hit milestones quickly, but you want to do it diligently. Like, so when we talked about day to day, you know, we're, we're living in contracts right now. We're trying to figure out the terms of how we're going to operate with some of the critical science and, and manufacturing data to be generated and how we're going to structure those things so that it's makes sense for the long term of the company. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we're pivoting our brain and thinking about payroll. Mm-hmm. And we're thinking about, you know, what the next step of commercialization is and study design and, and how we're going to build. And, and really what I can say as an operator at an early stage life science company, 
you have to wear every single hat and be able to switch your brain between those different things, but doing it patiently yeah. and, and realizing that you can't push science to happen faster just because you want it to. And, and you can't expect some of these different things to just fall into place like they do in business sometimes because in business, it's a little less high stakes, I'd say. One variable can't derail the whole project, but the smallest overstep in science can completely waste or burn millions of dollars. So we're trying to be really careful. So I think I kind of jumped around the question there, but. No, it's excellent. And I think the part of what you described there too is just the variability in the range that you are working on mm-hmm. within a given day. I think one one of the biggest challenges um, in being in the, the the role, you know, of the CEO or CBO is, is the day-to-day mm-hmm. and it's the ability to kind of handle um, the range of things. Like you mentioned, the, the sometimes what would seem to be mundane challenges, but are paramount and pivotal to the existence of the company, whether it's payroll or mm-hmm. HR, or, you know, having a benefits program in place that you can recruit get great team members mm-hmm. um, to, you know, trying to make sure that if we're, you know, running an experiment, we've got the right um, supplies, you know, the right uh, raw materials. We've got a place to do the work. We've got the right glassware, all that kind of stuff in right. place on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then, at the same time, being able to take a phone call from one of those investors mm-hmm. who has a complicated question, you know, about a milestone mm-hmm. and how are you doing on that milestone and creating an environment. You're not working in a vacuum, if you will. And it's it's how do you get from and live in both worlds in, in, in every day. Right. The importance and criticality of existential things like payroll to being able to think longer term and imagining success, that the milestone does happen, Mm -hmm. that you need to move on to the next stage and you're thinking about the next funding round. Any advice or counsel? or And do you feel that way as well, I guess, uh, with with the challenge? No, I think you bring up some really good points too. And and one specifically that you brought up that hits close to home is you're never not talking to those investors and fundraising. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to meet someone and say, money, please, and expect that to happen. Uh, you're, You're constantly cultivating those relationships. And when you're not fundraising is the best time to fundraise. So even though, you know, you just come out of a fundraise, this is your best opportunity to prime the pump on the next round. And if you're not thinking about what you're going to need to accomplish with that next round, what kind of milestones, what timelines, what the budget for that looks like, what the individual pieces you're going to need in place are, then you're going to miss something that's probably sitting right in front of you. So, you know, that constant paranoia is a good thing of of being able to stay on top of it all because you really need to always be priming the pump for the next round um, because that's the lifeblood of the company. If you don't start thinking about fundraising until you hit all your milestones from one round to the next, you're you're going to be dead in the water or at least spending six or seven months in limbo um, where you're not really hitting milestones. And, and that that can be just as bad. And would you say right now um, for Elnair, is it you need to make some material and then you're you're testing those materials or can you maybe describe what those milestones look like in terms of the business itself mm-hmm. in this phase of development. And I always say biotech is kind of like a relay race. You're kind of building to different milestones. You're taking baton from, you know, one group and passing it to another, mm-hmm. but a lot has to happen, you know, during your part of the run. Um, what, what would you say are the main activities? Is it making material around the delivery uh, vehicles, but then testing um, in, in vitro or, or, or in animals, or maybe just describe that if you can. Yeah. Um, so it's right now it's, it's around manufacturing, okay. uh, which in biotech, you know, CMC and how I describe this when we're talking to maybe someone who hasn't gone through a CMC process before is, 
you can bake a cake at home. Maybe you make a great cake. Um, but imagine if your business was to make millions of cakes and you had to make that cake consistently. How many things would you have to figure out about scaling that cake recipe and that manufacturing? Only now do that with something that is going to be a very precise delivered drug to cure someone's deadly disease. So manufacturing translation from what essentially is, you know, just uh, a laboratory location where you're just kind of doing it to make the, ma the material, you know, you're not really thinking about scaling to scaling that process and proving that the scaled process, the scaled cake tastes the same, works the same. Yeah. So right now we're going through that process. We're taking that cake and we're mass manufacturing. Cool. So we're figuring out what we have to do to make that process work better yeah. at a large scale, yeah. but then showing that the data works exactly the same. Yeah. Um, because our data that we've generated to date has been awesome. Yeah. And we want to make sure that we we keep that special sauce. Yeah. So yes, it's it's translating that manufacturing mm -hmm. and then running some key studies in order to make sure the translation works well and uh, give our investors confidence that this gigantic hurdle mm -hmm. of manufacturing is not one that's going to kill us, like has unfortunately killed so many other great products. Yeah. And the ability to kind of, you use the word scale. So make that, you know, massive or numbers of, of cakes, you know, with a hard and fast recipe that you can make it the same way every time with the right quality so that ultimately that drug is going to pass, you know, FDA scrutiny, you know, to be able to show that it's the right, meets the right quality standards so that when any person takes that drug, they can rely on it as being the material that you say that it is on the, on the label. And that's a big challenge. It's mm -hmm. a big challenge that often gets overlooked, I think, in that early scientific endeavor where uh, results around the early efficacy in a, in a screen, whether it's in an animal or even in vitro, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm around kind of whether it works, does it work in the mechanism, does it work at the target? But then there is this small detail of if it works, are you going to be able to make enough material? And if you can, mm -hmm. how expensive is it going to be? Because again, as you keep moving forward, um, you know, there, there's not a unlimited price that a patient or a payer can can pay. So that could be a gating factor for getting a technology to the, to the marketplace. So, you know, keeping your eye on that ball is a really important one. And I can only imagine if you're working on contracts, you're probably, for the listener, you're probably negotiating contracts with those manufacturers, the contract, you know, manufacturing organizations that can, that can make that cake right. <laughs> at scale, if, if you will. Is that right? Yeah. And it's, it's more than just a vendor, right? That's a, this is an in-depth partnership, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not everyone bakes with, you know, we're going to move away from the cake <laughs> metaphor, but, you know, metaphorically, not everyone. not I'm everyone hungry. Can, yeah, right, right. Uh, and if you've ever seen that show on Netflix, is it cake, right? You're not right, everyone can design that that perfect cake that could fool a judge <laughs> to think it's something else. Exactly. Um, and it's hard to find those people. So, like, doing a really diligent process of finding the right partner who can make the product in a way that isn't just good enough to pass the scrutiny, but good enough to scale, good enough to, you know, be at the best cost possible, um, so that you know you can distribute the drug at a at a way that's actually going to benefit society and and give those patients confidence. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a robust process that I think in other industries might not be as understood as in drugs. It's it's extremely important to have that that perfect manufacturing process down. So that's what we're going through now, which is very fun. Not losing any hair or anything. It's not scary. Well, you've <laughs> talked a lot about the importance of mentors. You've benefited from the different programs you're a part of, particularly those that you mentioned at the University of Chicago. Um, what about kind of in your early aim and setting your trajectory, you know, deciding, you know, to go into that advanced chemistry class? Were there any, um, you know, guiding lights or people that you were trying to follow that, you know, um, that you're trying to emulate, maybe even to this day that you 
say, well, maybe it's not even in the biotech field, but certain characteristics of an individual. And the reason I'm asking this question is just for the broader audience of, mm-hmm. of keeping an open mind toward and, and not being discouraged, you know, you know, even each as each year goes by, not knowing what your path might be, but maybe setting up some North Stars that you're aiming toward that start to, you know, move you in a direction that ultimately, like in your case, you know, led you to where you are in biotech. Any people like that in, in your journey? Yeah. Um, well, first off, the leadership team at Portal is a really great example of how to build from nothing mm-hmm. and to create that ecosystem that cultivates, right? You, you've created a platform. So mm-hmm. creating that platform that that Portal built of a venture hub in the Midwest and then showing how it can offshoot other life, that's inspirational. Mm-hmm. But when I was actually at a REIT, uh, the CEO there had a saying that you can't be what you can't see. And that really hit me. Like, you really can't get to something if you don't see it as possible. And whether that be a mentor or individual things uh, has always driven me. So for me, it's been seeing the people who have been kind of selfless in their leadership and don't, I guess, get greedy because it's it's easy to. Um, you know, I, I, we do a ton of case studies in our MBA and I think that you get to see firsthand these different organizations who have gone down good paths and bad paths and trying to identify the qualities have always been more, I guess, resounding to me or the stories of when people are willing to make those sacrifices to become those, I guess, leaders that, that I want to be. But, you know, one example would be uh, when ivermectin became a drug that was not profitable for the equatorial countries in Africa and South America. And Merck had this ability to either kill the program because they didn't have a commercially viable product or cure river blindness around the world and give these drugs away for free. Mm -hmm. And Merck elected to give this drug away for free and essentially cure river blindness for countries that couldn't afford it. And that story really resonates with me because that's a basic dollars and cents business decision that's in the negative in the profit column, but really important for society. And, And that's something I'd like to emulate. So when it comes to individuals, you know, leadership at Portal, Mark Tebby, who is an entrepreneur who built, but then is giving back and building again. Um, he, Professor Kaplan, Professor Meadow at the University of Chicago, I think I've seen a lot of really unbelievable entrepreneurs um, who have turned nothing into something, but then decided to turn around and give that back to people. And, and that's kind of what I want to be and what I want to inspire in others. What about, you know, if we look out over the next 10 years, what do you see as, you know, your major kind of personal opportunity, you know, over that course of that time horizon? And how might that intersect with kind of where you think the field is going? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, the areas that you've picked, cell therapy being a really important, you know, area of breakthrough that we've seen here in the last decade with a lot of potential, you mm-hmm. know, um, especially because, as you said, with AdGraft, it can go in a lot of different directions. You know, it can right. help a lot of different types of diseases given that it's a platform. So you got cell therapy on one hand, and then you've got kind of this field of drug delivery, you know, delivering um, to the site of action. And that, mm-hmm. that can mean a, a lot of things. And how you do that, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. Um, if you look out kind of over the next decade, do you see those two fields as being, you know, where you want to spend the lion's share of your time? And if so, um, maybe just talk a little bit about your vision for how that, how those um, technologies are capable of, you know, transforming, you know, how patients are cared for. Yeah. I, I think that first off the next 10 years, 10 years from now, we're going to look back at the technology of today and, and just be shocked with how far we've come. 
um, because that's the hockey stick of human progress. And cell therapy, novel drug delivery, you know, targeted therapy is going to be something that really redefines how we treat all kinds of disease. So when I think about what AdGraph can accomplish, um, a platform technology that can give a lifetime protein supply produced in vivo for a patient, I mean, the, the opportunities are endless. So I hope that we'll be able to get that to a point where not only is it something that we can, I guess, deploy safely, but something that we can deploy cheaply because there's so many diseases that maybe don't tick off the high box of manufacturing for expensive cell therapies today that could use this technology. And, and it starts with, you know, cocaine use disorder, alcohol use disorder, tobacco use disorder, some of the founding indications on AdGraft, um, which we recognize might not be the first commercial indication, but are great opportunities for actual societal impact. So yeah. when it comes Big to unmet needs, exactly, yeah. exactly. And unfortunately, unmet need doesn't always mean commercial opportunity. Mm -hmm. So for us, er, for, for me with AdGraft, it's really about making this accessible, building it, letting it have the impact it needs for patients. And with cell therapy, that could be a long journey. So that might take 10 years. But, you know, hopefully enabling technologies will come along and the right partners to help us accelerate that path and get it to patients faster. With an Alnair, we're hoping to really change the way that we think about cancer treatment and, and what the process of going through chemotherapy looks like. So to me, you know, the best outcome would be if one day Alnair has enabled a world where patients don't have to fear starting treatment for their cancer where they feel fine and then they start chemotherapy and then they're sick. Um, it's a brutal journey for patients. And, and we think that through targeted therapy of what we think that we have preclinically, this could make a really huge impact in that field. So when it comes to those technologies, that's the goal of the impact. But personally, and in terms of an industry, I think our job is to progress the technology classes of, you know, these front edge novel deliveries and novel materials and novel cell and gene therapies to the point where they're more accessible so that we can get more of them on the market. And it's a rising tide raises all ships to a degree and, and getting the FDA more comfort with it and getting payers more comfortable with it is going to come a long way in actually helping human health. Well, in closing, what advice would you give to a non-scientist who is thinking about their future career path? Any words uh, or, um, you know, just advice around um, guidance to enlighten or provide optionality to individuals that are just thinking about their future? Yeah, I'd say it's really easy to think that you know it all and to think that you know what you bring to the table. But all of the best entrepreneurs I've met and all of the most successful business people I've met are the most humble. And I think that what I strive to do and what I recommend to the young entrepreneurs going through the University of Chicago who come to me or whatever it may be is listen and don't, I mean, it's so cliche, but don't be the smartest person in the room. Like it's great to be surrounded by people who are smarter than you, who can help you to build on what you already are. And if you're not coachable, if you're not humble, funding partners, founding partners are going to sniff that out and not want to work with you. And, and your job is to be a ball of clay that gets molded because you aren't a scientist, but that doesn't mean you don't have the skills needed in order to help progress these technologies to the clinic. I love it, Ryan. No, I mean, I love your philosophy. I love your leadership style. Um, I'm really excited about what happens next with AdGraft and Elnair and, you know, your role in making those a reality. I have no doubt that, you know, the transformations that you're talking about over the next 10 years, you're going to play a significant role um, through your ability to kind of grasp what that opportunity is, what the needs are, and your ability to kind of build teams, explain things, and communicate and 
create the inspiration to actually get there. So I'm excited to watch your progress and feel lucky to have you a part of, part of Portal and um, looking forward to what happens next. Thank you. All that right back at you. It was a pleasure to be here and can't wait to have front row seats to everything Portal's going to do that's going to change the world in the next decade too. So we'll do it alongside each other. <laughs> Let's do it together. Awesome. Sounds good. Looking right. forward to it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.